Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for February 7th through 13th, 2022. This is covering Genesis 12 through 17 and Abraham 1 and 2. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Oh, I can't wait to study today. Wow. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 36 minutes, 40 seconds. Well, that's a pretty good reading week, but what would it be daily? 5 minutes, 14 seconds. Yeah, and that's so doable. Here we've got time codes that will help us to move through this chapter by chapter, or if you want to study it all together, buckle up and we'll jump in. Now, after the flood... The posterity of Noah began to multiply and establish cities and kingdoms upon the earth. Many of the people turned from the Lord and became wicked and began to build a great tower in Babel. Because of the wickedness of the people, the Lord confounded their language and scattered them to different places upon the earth. Generations later, while living in Ur, Abraham sought the blessings of the priesthood and desired to be a greater follower of righteousness. However, his fathers had turned from righteousness to worship false idols. Now, Abraham was born 1,938 years after the fall of Adam. Most Bible chronologies place this around 2000 BC. It's a loose time frame, but this gives us an idea of when we're talking about. The Come Follow Me manual gives us this additional background. Because of the covenant God made with him, Abraham has been called the father of the faithful, and the friend of God. Millions today honor him as their direct ancestor, and others have been adopted into his family through conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet Abraham himself came from a troubled family. His father, who had abandoned the true worship of God, tried to have Abraham sacrificed to false gods. In spite of this, Abraham's desire was to be a greater follower of righteousness, And the account of his life shows that God honored his desire. Abraham's life stands as a testimony that no matter what a person's family history has been, the future can be filled with hope. I love that paragraph from the Come Follow Me manual. What a great summary. So like many of us, Abraham lived in a wicked environment, yet he desired to be righteous. So let's see what lessons we can learn from his life. Let's start in Abraham. This is in your Pearl of Great Price, chapter 1, and let's start in verse 1. In the land of the Chaldeans, at the residence of my fathers, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. (laughs) Now, I wonder why that was, Jay asked sarcastically. If you don't know the story... This may not seem that funny, but think back to this after we read chapter one, or look at the image on facsimile one. That's Abraham on the altar. This should give you a clue of what an understatement that phrase in verse one is. It was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. Really? With people trying to kill you? Okay. But where was Abraham? In Genesis chapter 11, verse 28 and 31, it makes it clear that he and his family were in Ur of the Chaldees. 
But if you look at your map in your scriptures, either in your paper scriptures or in your study helps in the digital scriptures, you'll see two locations for Ur, each with a question mark. The southern site is generally accepted as the location of Ur, but the Book of Abraham offers additional insights that give good reasons for thinking that it's closer to the northern proposed location. For more on this, you could check out this article, Where Was the Ur of Abraham by Paul Y. Hoskison. It's from the July 1991 Enzyme, and we'll put a link to it in the description. One other thing you might want to note as we talk about Abraham in the book of Abraham, and later when we go to Genesis, he'll be called Abram. So his name originally was Abram, but the book of Abraham was written by Abraham later in life. And so he refers to himself as Abraham, but his name will be changed from Abram to Abraham in the Genesis account. And we'll talk about that today. So what do you see in this coming verse, verse two, that describes Abraham's desires? Verse two, and finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness, and to possess a greater knowledge, and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desiring to receive instructions, and to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. Did you notice in that verse things like he sought for, he desiring, he used that phrase twice, have you ever felt that way, like Abraham has? Elder Neil A. Maxwell in the October 1996 General Conference, and this is a quote included in the seminary manual, says that desire denotes a real longing or craving. What we insistently desire over time is what we will eventually become and what we will receive in eternity. I love that. That's how important desire is. Indeed. And from the Come Follow Me manual, we get this great quote from President Dallin H. Oaks. This is from April 2011 General Conference. He says, quote, As important as it is to lose every desire for sin, eternal life requires more. To achieve our eternal destiny, we will desire and work for the qualities required to become an eternal being. If this seems too difficult... And surely it is not easy for any of us. Then we should begin with a desire for such qualities and call upon our loving Heavenly Father for help with our feelings, end quote. That's so important. I want to include one more. This is from Joseph B. Worthlin from the April 1992 General Conference, also included in the seminary manual. The word seek means to go in search of, try to discover, try to acquire, it requires an active, assertive approach to life. It is the opposite of passively waiting for something good to come to us with no effort on our part. Mm. So notice that with Abraham, he sought for, he desired. So even though Abraham was already a follower of righteousness, what spiritual blessings did he desire and seek to obtain? 
Let me just list them in bullet point. The blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same, which is in reference to the priesthood. Next, to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness. Remember, he says he's a follower of righteousness, but he wants to be a greater follower. He wants to possess greater knowledge, to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God. Those are his desires. That's what he seeks. And because of these desires and the actions these desires led him to, this was the outcome. I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. Nice. Let's go back to the chapter, verse 5. My fathers, having turned from their righteousness and from the holy commandments which the Lord their God had given unto them, unto the worshiping of the gods of the heathen, utterly refused to hearken to my voice. For their hearts were set to do evil, and were wholly turned to the god of Elkanah, and the god of Libna, and the god of Mamakra, and the god of Korash, and the god of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore they turned their hearts to the sacrifice of the heathen in offering up their children unto these dumb idols, and hearkened not unto my voice, but endeavored to take away my life by the hand of the priest of Elkanah. The priest of Elkanah was also the priest of Pharaoh. Let's go on in verse 8. Now at this time it was the custom of the priest of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to offer up upon the altar which was built in the land of Chaldea for the offering unto these strange gods, men, women, and children. As those verses go on, it continues to re-emphasize this, which is why I find verse 11 so interesting. We already know that men, women, and children are offered upon the altar. So why does he take a break and tell us about these young women in verse 11? Now this priest had offered upon this altar three virgins at one time who were the daughters of Oneida, one of the royal descendant directly from the loins of Ham. These virgins were offered up because of their virtue. They would not bow down to worship gods of wood or of stone. Therefore they were killed upon this altar, and it was done after the manner of the Egyptians. So my question is, why does Abraham take a break to talk about these young women? First of all, what do we learn about them from this one verse? They were virtuous. It uses the term because of their virtue. Now, remember, although chastity is part of virtue, virtue is much more than that. Virtue is a loyalty and a respect to goodness and righteousness and covenants and honor. So we get a picture of the kind of women these are. They were daughters of Oneida, one of the royal descendant directly from the loins of Ham. So we get their descendancy. It's not from Shem, where Abraham is from, but these are also not low-profile young women. One of the royal descendant? These are, I don't know, for lack of a better term, princesses. They are high up on the social hierarchy. They're also high-profile. So why is it so important to kill them? Because their virtue in being true to God is something that will have an impact on others if they don't get rid of them. And I wonder how many righteous people were there in Ur of the Chaldees at this time with Abram. It doesn't seem like very many. So I wonder if they knew each other, but even if they didn't, it seems that Abraham mentions this 
because it had a lasting impact on him. Coming up, Abraham himself will be on the altar. In that case, the Lord will save him. But think about later in life, and he's writing this later in life. He remembers back to these particular young women and their example. When things would get hard for Abraham, I wonder if he thought, okay, but these young women were willing to give up everything to be true to God. So anyways, I've done this painting of the daughters of Oneida. And although it's not finished, I'm showing you what I've got just because we don't really have any images of them. And I find them incredibly heroic and inspiring that in the face of, I mean, especially high profile young women, they have a lot to lose by staying true to what they know is right and to being virtuous in the public eye. And they were willing to give it all up in order to stay true and faithful. So like Abraham, I also find them very inspiring. As does Elder Neil A. Maxwell. In the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, they have a quote from his book, Not My Will But Thine. He discusses these three virtuous young women, along with three exceptionally faithful young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, as marvelous models on enduring uncertainty and on trusting God. He says, matching those three young men are three young women whose names we do not have. They are mentioned in the book of Abraham, remarkable young women about whom I am anxious to know more. They were actually sacrificed upon the altar because they would not bow down to worship an idol of wood or stone. Someday, the faithful will get to meet them. Now, in verses 12 through 14, you can see that it's a description of facsimile number one. This depiction represents Abraham on the altar and the false priest preparing to sacrifice him. The depiction also contains images of the many false gods the people worshipped at that time. Now, you may read these and just want to give up when you see challenging names. And if you do, may I encourage you, and we probably will do this throughout the Old Testament, would you just have some fun with the names? First of all, as we've noted before, scholars are not unified in how these are pronounced. So however you pronounce them, pronounce them with confidence. The easiest thing to do is click on this icon in the chapter that you're reading. It's the audio icon. And you can just play the audio recording. The narrator will pronounce the names for you. And then when you're in Sunday school or with your kids or with friends, you'll be so confident and cool. You'll say things like Elkanah and Libna and Mamakra and Koresh and Relinos. And even if you don't, because John and I pronounce these names differently than the narrator at times, I usually say Mamakra, but Mamakra is super cool. And let's bear in mind one of the reasons why we have so much back and forth on how to pronounce these ancient names, we're trying to put it together with information we have now. At the end of the day, no one lived 4,000 years ago that's still alive today that we have contact with. So we don't know how it's pronounced. We're just doing our best. So with that, let's go back to the chapter, starting in verse 15. And as they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me up and take away my life, behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord my God. And the Lord hearkened and heard, and he filled me with the vision of the Almighty. And the angel of his presence stood by me and immediately unloosed my bands. 
And his voice was unto me, Abraham, Abraham, behold, my name is Jehovah, and I have heard thee, and have come down to deliver thee, and to take thee away from thy father's house, and from all thy kinsfolk, into a strange land which thou knowest not of. And this because they have turned their hearts away from me, to worship the God of Elkanah, and the God of Libna, and the God of Mamakra, and the God of Korash, and the God of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore I have come down to visit them, and to destroy him who hath lifted up his hand against thee, Abraham my son, to take away thy life. Behold, I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father, and my power shall be over thee. As it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. But through thy ministry my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. Behold, Potiphar's hill was in the land of Ur of Chaldea, and the Lord broke down the altar of Elkanah and the gods of the land, and utterly destroyed them, and smote the priest that he died. And there was great mourning in Chaldea, and also in the court of Pharaoh, which Pharaoh signifies king by royal blood. Now, side note with this story, look at the phrase in verse 19, As it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. It should be noted that Noah, Abraham's eighth great-grandfather, is probably still alive at this point. Noah dies when Abraham is 68, and we don't know when Abraham's writing this record, but if he was 68 or younger, Noah would still be alive. And in fact, Shem, Abraham's seventh great-grandfather, would actually outlive Abraham. It's important to keep that in mind as we have these long ages of early ancestors. So let's go on to verse 29. Now, after the priest of Elkanah was smitten that he died, there came a fulfillment of those things which were said unto me concerning the land of Chaldea, that there should be a famine in the land. Accordingly, a famine prevailed throughout all the land of Chaldea, and my father was sorely tormented because of the famine. And he repented of the evil which he had determined against me to take away my life. So this is where we pick up in the Genesis account in chapter 11, verse 31, where it reads, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. Now Abraham chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 makes it clear that it is Abraham leading this group, not Terah, his father, and that he is following God's instructions. Right. Terah is spiritually unstable, perhaps, we could say. Mm. But you might have noticed we skipped some verses. Within Abraham chapter 1 is a digression in verses 21 through 31, which explains that after the flood, a woman named Egyptus, who was Noah's granddaughter through Ham, settled in a land with her sons. The land became known as the land of Egypt, and Egyptus's oldest son, Pharaoh, established the first government. Subsequent leaders of Egypt were also called Pharaoh. This may have been important to describe to his readers because Abraham would be traveling to Egypt soon in this story. From the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, 
It includes a quote from Elder Bruce R. McConkie from his book, A New Witness for the Articles of Faith. He says, Abraham, who received theocratic power from Melchizedek, went down into Egypt. There he found a descendant of Ham reigning as Pharaoh, whose government was patterned after the patriarchal governments of old, but which was devoid of priesthood and revelation, and hence, as far as worship is concerned, a worship prescribed, mandated, and commanded by Pharaoh had turned to idolatry. You know, that's an interesting perspective, that phrase that the government was patterned after the patriarchal governments of old. Just for perspective, Abraham's relation to Adam at this time, from a time perspective, is about the same as our relationship today with the time of Jesus Christ. It was about 2,000 years ago. And so that gives you a little bit of perspective of how much history has gone on so far that we've barely scratched the surface of. And given that, before we leave this digression in Abraham 1, there's a very intriguing couple of statements that I want to talk about in verses 28 and 31. So 28 reads, But I shall endeavor hereafter to delineate the chronology running back from myself to the beginning of the creation. For the records have come into my hands, which I hold unto this present time. And then in verse 31, But the records of the fathers, even the patriarchs, concerning the right of priesthood, the Lord my God preserved in mine own hands. Therefore, a knowledge of the beginning of the creation and also of the planets and of the stars, as they were made known unto the fathers, have I kept unto this day, and I shall endeavor to write some of these things upon this record for the benefit of my posterity that shall come after me. So, what records are these? It's too early for any of the records we currently possess. Abraham is unfortunately not specific. Perhaps he assumed we would have these, I like to think it may have been an early version of the scriptures, perhaps the really Old Testament. I would hope that it would have included Adam's Book of Remembrance and the entire Book of Enoch, just to name a few. Maybe one day we'll be able to read that record. But unfortunately, today is not that day. Although, as we've already studied in chapter 3, he does give us some of the information he's talking about. And yes, we did get some of the Book of Enoch back when we were studying Moses. I get it. But I want to read the whole book. Well, it would be great to have the original sources for sure. So let's go back to God's instructions to Abraham in chapter 2, verse 3. Now the Lord had said unto me, Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. If we desire righteousness, sometimes we will be asked to leave our country, culture, family, and do something new. And perhaps only then can we come to the promised land the Lord has prepared for us. Let's go on in verse 6. But I, Abraham, and Lot, my brother's son, prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord appeared unto me and said unto me, Arise and take Lot with thee, for I have purposed to take thee away out of Haran, and to make of thee a minister to bear my name in a strange land, which I will give unto thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession, when they hearken to my voice. The inheritance promised in this verse is part of what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. 
The Abrahamic covenant refers to all the covenants and promises the Lord offered to Abraham and his seed. Note that these include responsibilities and promises. For example, the responsibility here is to be a minister of Jesus Christ, hearken to the Lord's voice. And the blessings are to receive land for an everlasting possession. Now, more will be added, but that's what we know so far. So in verses 7 through 8, God proclaims that he has the almighty power to keep his promises to Abraham and Abraham's seed. So let's look further at this covenant. Verse 9, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear his ministry and priesthood unto all nations. Now the promise of children was one Abraham and Sarai greatly desired. Shortly after he gave this promise, the Lord described how numerous Abraham's posterity would be. This is skipping to chapter 3, verse 14. And it was in the nighttime when the Lord spake these words unto me, I will multiply thee and thy seed after thee like unto these. If thou canst count the number of sands, so shall be the number of thy seeds. Now, when he's talking about these, they're talking about stars. So not only comparing to the sands of the sea, but also the stars in the heaven. And that had to have been particularly meaningful having this conversation at night. The promise of innumerable posterity is also a promise of godhood, which includes receiving eternal posterity. We talked about that in Doctrine and Covenants 132 last year. So let's add that to our list of blessings in the Abrahamic covenant. Going on in verse 10, And I will bless them through thy name, for as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. Verses 9 and 11 make it clear that as part of the responsibilities of the Abrahamic covenant, We are to minister to all the families of the earth with the blessings of the gospel. From the October 2005 General Conference, we have this brief quote from Elder David A. Bednar. Quote, Truly great responsibility rests upon the seed of Abraham in these latter days. We are here upon the earth at this time to magnify the priesthood and to preach the gospel. That is who we are, and that is why we are here. End quote. So well said. So let's take a look back to chapter 2 in Abraham, verses 12 through 13. Now, after the Lord had withdrawn from speaking to me and withdrawn his face from me, I said in my heart, Thy servant has sought thee earnestly. Now I have found thee. Thou didst send thine angel to deliver me from the gods of Elkana, and I will do well to hearken unto thy voice. Therefore, let thy servant rise up and depart in peace. Can you see yourself in this story? When have you sought earnestly for the Lord and found him? Perhaps you can relate to what Abraham is feeling. Now, in Abraham chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, Abraham and his family traveled south from Haran to the land of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, it tells us who they brought on their journey. So again, Genesis chapter 12, in verse 5, it says, And Abram took Sarai his wife, 
and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Notice what they said there, the souls they had gotten. Now, that can be interpreted many different ways. Some people feel it's servants they'd purchased or, you know, could be friends. But I thought it was interesting that the word soul was used there. That to me seems to mean something more significant. And indeed, in Abraham chapter 2, verse 15, it clarifies what is meant by the souls they had gotten. It says, and all our substance that we had gathered and the souls that we had won in Haran. To me, that sounds like missionary work has already begun with Abraham. And you remember how desperately he tried to preach in Ur of the Chaldees. That didn't go very well. So here we've got some blessings that are coming from his missionary work. So after arriving in Canaan, Abraham offered sacrifice And the Lord declared that this land of Canaan was to be the land promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Then, because of a famine in the land, Abraham decided to travel to Egypt. Abraham chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, and Genesis 12, 11 through 13, our records are beginning to really click together here, shows us that before Abraham entered Egypt, the Lord warned him that the Egyptians would see how beautiful Sarai was and would kill Abraham so they could take her. Therefore, the Lord instructed Sarai to say that she was Abraham's sister, to save Abraham's life and to protect herself. This is not clear in the Genesis account, which makes it seem like it was Abraham's idea and not the Lord's, but Abraham makes it very clear who gave the instructions. Just a side note here, I want to take a moment to marvel at the morality of the Egyptian society at this time. They clearly honored marriage. You should never take someone else's wife. That's adultery. But if you really want to take his wife, you could just kill the husband. Then it is not adultery because she's not married. (laughs) Right. In summary, adultery, bad. Murdering someone to avoid adultery, that's okay. That boggles my mind, but I will have to admit that our own modern societies have similarly perplexing moralities, too. But John brings up a good point here, and this is important to remember because he's right. That is how they geared that morality. That's going to show up in later stories in Genesis, so just remember that priority. Adultery, super bad. Murder, eh, not as bad, but you definitely don't take someone else's wife. So, In Genesis chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, both Sarai and Abram acted in faith, believing that God would deliver them. Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house, and Abram was given riches. But the Lord sent a plague to Pharaoh and his house, and Pharaoh realized that Sarai was being protected by God and that she was married to Abram. Pharaoh sent Abram and Sarai away, but of course, he sent them away with many riches. Right. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 13. Now remember how violence led to the flood and the commandments the Lord gave to avoid violence and conflict one against another. And notice that there was a stress on murder, something that perhaps the Egyptians didn't quite internalize. Look for how Abram responded when conflict and disagreement arose in his family. In the first four verses, 
Abram and Lot left Egypt with all their flocks and possessions and journeyed back to the land of Canaan. But there's a problem, starting in verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. So how would you propose solving this problem? Basically, their flocks were too big and the land was too small. The use of resources caused them to get in each other's way. How far would you be willing to go for peace? Let's look at what Abraham did. In verse 8, And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Lot chose the best land, but it included the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 12 states that he pitched his tent toward Sodom, meaning by or near. These two cities were located in the plain of Jordan and have become synonymous with evil and immorality because of the wickedness of their people. We will learn more about them in Genesis 19. Now, in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17, after Lot departed with his family, the Lord promised Abram all the land that he could see as an inheritance for his posterity. In contrast to the image of Lot's inheritance, where he pitched his tent toward Sodom, notice what Abram does in verse 18. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron and built there an altar unto the Lord. Now that brings us to chapter 14. In the first verses, you will be inundated with crazy names. Remember what we talked about. Have fun with them. Use your audio feature. Do you have a favorite? How about Ketterleomer? And I think Zeboyim is super cool. (laughs) But can I just take a moment to look at these names? In the Hebrew, the letters are only consonants, and so when the vowels are added, they're added for our benefit. In our language, we're used to combining vowels for a particular sound. Like, for example, the audio scriptures will pronounce zeboyim, using the O and the I to create the oi sound, and then the other I separate. You would be completely safe when you see multiple vowels to just pronounce each vowel. So you might look at zeboyim and say zeboyim, using two different vowel sounds for those two vowels, zebo-i-im. Or you can see it in Keterleomer. You don't have to combine the A and the O, and that's what often confuses us. Just go ahead and pronounce each vowel separately. Keter-le-o-mer. Keterleomer. And again, if someone argues, just confidently say, um, were you there 4,000 years ago? Exactly. I didn't think so. You could say, this is how we pronounce it in my family. (laughs) But have fun. Don't let these be an intimidation. These should be a lot of fun to say. All right, so let's take a look at the first 10 verses of Genesis 14. There are four local kings who united their forces and attacked several cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that Lot lived near there, or so we thought. Look at verse 12. Lot is living in 
Sodom. Oh, that's not good. And is taken captive in the raid. Isn't it interesting that seemingly small choices can lead to large consequences? Much like Lot's decision regarding where to pitch his tent, the decisions we make on a daily basis can have enormous consequences. Right. Now, verses 13 through 16, when Abram learned of Lot's capture, he gathered and armed his servants and pursued the armies. He caught up with them, and during the ensuing battle, Abram and his allies freed the captives. Nice. So in verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Can you visualize this scene? The king of Sodom, the wicked city, and Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, in the same place. Look for what each of these kings offered Abram. Right, in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and, now here let's insert the Joseph Smith translation, check your footnotes, and he brake bread and blessed it, and he blessed the wine, he being the priest of the Most High God. Does that sound familiar? Interesting. Verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. So what did Melchizedek offer Abram? A blessing. And it would seem a sacred ordinance of some kind. Yeah, which is very similar to what we know today as the sacrament. Also, what did Abram give Melchizedek? He gave him tithes. So, what did the king of Sodom offer Abram? All the goods or spoils of the people of Sodom that had been taken by their enemies. So, what was Abram's response to this offer? In verse 22, And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Yeah, you know, resisting evil influences, regardless how small, helps us to stay true to God and free from sin. This is a real difference between Lot and Abram. And again, you can see this playing out. What a beautiful image. Melchizedek, king of Sodom, where are Abram's priorities? What were his desires that we learned about in Abraham chapter 1, verse 2? And you could see them playing out right here. And where was his trust? Abram was fully confident that if he needed money, if he needed wealth, the Lord would provide it for him. Right. And he definitely didn't want to have as part of his wealth any kind of evil association, even if it was distant. Again, the idea of not being able to say that the king of Sodom made Abram rich. It was the Lord. Yep. And it was not only important for Abram to recognize that, but he wanted, I think, the people around to know that. So let's look for what we learned about Melchizedek in verses 18 through 20. This is the Melchizedek that was such a great high priest that the greater priesthood was named after him. 
as we learn in Doctrine and Covenants 107. The biblical account doesn't give us very much information about this great high priest. The Joseph Smith translation gives us much more information about who Melchizedek was and what he did. You can find the Joseph Smith translation for Genesis chapter 14, verses 25 through 40, in the appendix of the Bible. That would be in your paper copy. In the digital version, it is in your study helps, and then Joseph Smith translation appendix. We can't cover all the verses here, but verse 26 teaches us, Now Melchizedek was a man of faith who wrought righteousness, and when a child he feared God and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. Well, that's quite a teaser, isn't it? They don't tell us anything more than that, but it still gives you an interesting perspective on who this Melchizedek was. In verses 30 through 34 in the Joseph Smith translation, it should give you a flavor of the awesomeness of Melchizedek and the power of the priesthood named after him. Let's take a look in verse 30 of the Joseph Smith translation. For God, having sworn unto Enoch and unto his seed with an oath by himself, that everyone being ordained after this order and calling should have power by faith to break mountains, to divide seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth, to break every band, to stand in the presence of God, to do all things according to his will, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of God, which was from before the foundation of the world. And men having this faith, coming up unto this order of God, were translated and taken up into heaven. And now Melchizedek was a priest of this order, Therefore he obtained peace in Salem, and was called the Prince of Peace, and his people wrought righteousness, and obtained heaven. Wow. You know, there are some who suggest that Noah's son Shem is actually Melchizedek. As I mentioned earlier, Shem is alive at this time and would actually go on to outlive Abram. And Shem and Melchizedek have never been photographed together. Hmm. Now, while this may be true, it may not. It stems from the mystery that Shem is one of the most prominent sons of Noah, but is never heard of beyond the flood story, despite being alive at the time of Abraham. And up until now, we've never heard anything about Melchizedek, a high priest so amazing that the high priesthood is hereafter named after him. He just kind of shows up all of a sudden. But the idea is definitely speculation. It may just simply seem this way due to the incomplete nature of the record we have. But if you want to read more about some cases made, you might want to check out this article called Is It Possible That Shem and Melchizedek Are the Same Person? by Alma E. Gaiji in the November 1973 enzyme. We'll include a link in the description. Good reading. Either way, I'll tell you... It's amazing. We had more information about Enoch and his city, but Melchizedek seems to have done something very similar to what Enoch had done, and that's pretty exciting. It's pretty amazing, yeah. That brings us to Genesis chapter 15. Now, as we've read, the Lord has made many promises to Abram, but as he got older, he worried about his future. Let's take a look, starting at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I 
am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir, speaking here of Eleazar of Damascus. In verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now that's interesting. That harkens back to Abraham chapter 3, verse 14, as we read earlier. Well, let's take a look at the Joseph Smith translation here. This is found in the appendix. This is the Joseph Smith translation for Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 to 12. And Abram said, Lord God, how wilt thou give me this land for an everlasting inheritance? And the Lord said, Though thou wast dead, yet am I not able to give it thee? And if thou shalt die, yet thou shalt possess it. For the day cometh that the Son of Man shall live. But how can he live if he be not dead? He must first be quickened. And it came to pass that Abram looked forth and saw the days of the Son of Man, and was glad. And his soul found rest, and he believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it unto him for righteousness. You know, that's such a great perspective, those verses, because remember, the promises will always be fulfilled, but in the Lord's time. And so Abram has a particular perspective about how he thinks these things should be fulfilled. And I don't blame him. It seems logical. And yet the Lord is telling him, they will be in my own time. And let's not overlook what the Lord does to give Abram that perspective. He has a vision of the days of the mortal ministry of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Yeah. And this is a good 2,000 years before it will happen. And it's interesting how God keeps bringing our understanding back to that. All things will be anchored in the mission, ministry, and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So when we believe that the Lord will fulfill his promises to us, whether in mortality or eternity, think about the peace that brings. So let's go on in verses 9 through 18. The Lord assured Abram that his seed would be given a land of inheritance, even though they would be a stranger in a land that is not theirs for a period of 400 years. This is mentioned in verse 13. This was referring to the Israelites' bondage to the Egyptians in a future time from Abram's day. Very interesting. Well, let's go on to Genesis chapter 16. In the first few verses, Sarai could not have any children, so she gave her handmaid Hagar to Abram as a plural wife. From Latter-day Revelation, we understand that this was a commandment from God that Abram and Sarai obeyed. We talked about that when we studied Doctrine and Covenants 132, thus fulfilling the Lord's promise that Abram would have children. So if somebody is familiar with the story of Abram, and remember, we keep using the name Abram and Abraham. His name will be changed later in the next chapter. They usually know the part where he has been given the heartbreaking commandment to sacrifice his future son that he has waited for for so long. I would propose that Sarai put her son on the altar first. Decades have passed and still the promise of children 
has not been fulfilled. Now, by chapter 16, Sarai is about 76 years old, being about 10 years younger than Abram, referencing verse 17 in this chapter. And Abram being about 86 during chapter 16, verse 16. And they've been living in the land of Canaan for 10 years already. She has been waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And now she's old and she cannot fulfill the promise, but she desires it to be fulfilled that Abram might have the blessings promised by the Lord. But she realizes now that it will not be through her. At the moment she gives Hagar to Abram, she is letting go of any hope that she will be the mother of nations. This is her moment to put her son on the altar to God. She is sacrificing her son and her will to God. So as we talked about last year in Doctrine and Covenants, at certain times, the Lord has commanded his people to practice plural marriage. Plural marriage was practiced by Abram and Sarai and their grandson Jacob, as well as others in the Old Testament, like Moses and David and Solomon. And it was practiced for a time during the early days of the restored church, beginning with Joseph Smith. In Sarai's case, her servant Hagar would have the child for her. Sarai would name it and it would be hers. But even this expectation will be taken away from her, as we'll see in the coming story. In chapter 16, verses 4 through 6, after Hagar conceived a child, she began to despise Sarai. Sarai responded by dealing hardly with Hagar, who fled into the wilderness. This is interesting. Why would Hagar not know her place in a social setting of servant and master or mistress. We find some interesting information in a Jewish midrash. Now, a midrash is a commentary on scripture. Kind of like an institute manual. Actually, yeah, that's pretty close. These commentaries have been collected by the Jews over many centuries, and many of them are quite old. So let me share with you an interesting quote from a professor, Tikva Freimer Kensky, who I'm a big fan of. Her book, Reading the Women of the Bible, I think is wonderful. She says this, A Jewish midrash relates that Hagar was a princess in the house of Pharaoh. When Pharaoh saw the wonders that God had performed for Sarai and Abram, he said, Better for my daughter to be a servant in this house than a princess in any other, and sent her off. Now, Granted, this commentary is from a very old tradition, but it does help to explain a bit about her tone and attitude in the story. So, just food for thought. So, look at the situation. How would you feel if you had been in Sarai's position? Now, imagine yourself in Hagar's position. So, Hagar runs away into the wilderness. And while in the wilderness, a really remarkable interaction happens an angel appeared to her. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 15, and let me just talk about them as we do. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. Notice that the angel found her. She wasn't searching for the angel. Going on in verse 8, and he said, Hagar. Now that right there is interesting. Up until now, Nobody in the story has called her by her name. She's related to by her ethnicity, but mostly by her social status. 
Now, I don't mean this to be a criticism to Sarai or Abram, because we don't have very much of their dialogue. But when they do speak, she's referred to usually as the maid, not by her name. The first person in this story to call her by her name is the angel of God, which is fascinating because Hagar did have an ethnicity. You know, she's from Egypt and she did have a social status. She's a maidservant, but that is not her primary identity. That is not who God concerns himself with primarily. It's us as individuals. And we see that right in verse eight. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. Look at that phrase, especially if that midrash has any truth to it. A commandment from the Lord to humble yourself, like he's asking her to do, must have been very difficult. And to return to her mistress. She might have said something like, hey, it's not my fault, but the Lord is giving her a commandment. With that commandment will come promises. And that's what we get in verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now, let's just think of that for a moment. What other woman do you know in all of scripture that is given a promise for her posterity independent of her husband. This is a promise for her specifically. Very unique and special. Verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. That verse in verse 12, the language that's used there seems to indicate nobody will bind him. He will not be the servant to others. She may be a servant, Hagar, but not Ishmael. He will be free and strong. In verse 13, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. Think of the name. She names God, and the name that she gives to God says something about the relationship that she experienced. God saw her and spoke to her. Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now you might notice in the footnote for Bier Lahairoi, it says, The well of him who liveth and seeth me. I just love this. Hagar is converted to the Lord because he sees her. And the name of the place is called the well of him that liveth and seeth me. So going on in verse 15, and Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. Now, here again, it should have been Sarai's son to name, but that was not the Lord's plan. The Lord has completely taken this child out of Sarai's hands, a true sacrifice. The Lord will name the child, and he will name him through a revelation 
to Hagar. There's another great quote from Professor Tikva Frimer Kensky in her book, Reading the Women of the Bible. She says, the second address makes Hagar the only woman to receive a divine promise of seed, not through a man, but as her own destiny. And the third statement puts Hagar in the company of those few women, Samson's mother, Hannah, and Mary in the New Testament, who receive a divine annunciation of the coming birth. And what a birth! Hagar will have a glorious progeny who can never be exploited or subjected if she voluntarily goes back. And so Hagar goes back. Recognizing the divine power, she neither argues nor avoids the request. But before she gives up her autonomy, she exercises it by naming God according to her own experience. God called Hagar by name, the only character in the story to do so. And Hagar responds naming God, El Roy, God of my seeing. Nice. And along that line, we have a quote from Dieter F. Uchtdorf. This comes from April 2013 General Conference, where he says, quote, You are not alone on this journey. Your Heavenly Father knows you. Even when no one else hears you, He hears you. When you rejoice in righteousness, He rejoices with you. When you are beset with trial, He grieves with you. End quote. So Hagar and her son Ishmael are revered in the Islamic faith as ancestors of Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Muslims, or followers of Islam, also honor Abraham as a prophet. Wonderful. That brings us now to Genesis chapter 17. Let's start in verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. Now note in verse 1 the command, Be thou perfect. Does that sound familiar? It's kind of like the Savior's later command in Matthew chapter 5, Be ye therefore perfect. We've talked about the true nature of perfect before, but as a quick refresher, Here's a favorite quote from a landmark talk called Perfection Pending by President Russell M. Nelson in October 1995 General Conference, where he says, quote, In Matthew 5.48, the term perfect was translated from the Greek teleos, which means complete. Teleos is an adjective derived from the noun telos, which means end. The infinitive form of the verb is teleono, which means to reach a distant end to be fully developed, to consummate, or to finish. Please note that the word does not imply freedom from error. It implies achieving a distant objective. In fact, when writers of the Greek New Testament wish to describe perfection of behavior, precision, or excellence of human effort, they did not employ a form of teleos. Instead, they chose different words, end quote. That's wonderful. And a great reminder. And you can see this play out in the journey of Abram and Sarai's life. So as part of establishing his covenant with Abram, the Lord did something to remind Abram and Sarai of the promised blessings. Let's go on to verse 3. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. 
Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now, if you check your Bible dictionary under Abraham, it will tell you the meaning of the name and why it's an important name change. Originally, Abram meant exalted father, but Abraham means father of a multitude. Now, Sarai's name will change too, and we'll get to that. We wanted to include a quote here from Russell M. Nelson. This comes from an article called Special Witnesses of Christ from the April 2001 Enzyme. He says, quote, The ultimate blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are conferred in holy temples. These blessings allow us to come forth in the first resurrection and inherit thrones, kingdoms, powers, principalities, and dominions to our exaltation and glory in all things, end quote. So let's go back to chapter 17. In verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Wonderful. Now, in verses 9 through 14, as well as 23 through 27, the Lord sets forth a token or reminder of the covenant God made with Abraham. He commanded that Abraham and all male members of his household be circumcised. This symbol would act as a reminder of the responsibilities and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You can learn more in the Bible dictionary under circumcision. Circumcision as a token of the Abrahamic covenant was no longer required after Jesus Christ's mortal ministry. Moroni chapter 8 verse 8 can give more information on that. Abraham may have considered Ishmael to be the answer to his prayers for children, but the Lord planned to fulfill his covenant with Abraham in an additional way. And let's take a look at that. Verse 15, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, Thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. Now, in the Bible dictionary, we find out that Sarah means princess. Going on in verse 16, And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Now, that's interesting. I want to remind you that Sarah is 90 years old at this point. Normally, you would call a woman of royalty at that age a queen, but here her name means princess. Going on in verse 16, And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed. Now, note the footnote on there. The Hebrew could also be translated as rejoiced. And in fact, the Joseph Smith translation also uses the term rejoiced. And said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, O oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him 
for an everlasting covenant with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. You know, it's interesting that Abraham still hasn't caught the vision. By verse 18, it seems like he thinks Ishmael is still going to be the covenant son. And I guess, why not? But he needed to learn something. Abraham had to learn that it was not necessarily his son that was important for the covenant to continue. It was important that it was Sarah's son. And that we'll see going forward. So for a summary of the Abrahamic covenant, feel free to check out the article in your gospel topic section of your gospel library app. We'll put a link in the description, but don't forget those tools, especially if you want a good summary of something as important as the Abrahamic covenant and how it applies to us. In the meantime, what amazing things we've learned this week. Indeed. What I love about the Old Testament stories is how relatable they are. These are real people struggling with real problems and relationships. We haven't had any moments where the Red Sea has parted or anything like that. These are just interactions and people struggling to do what is right before God. And there's a lot to be learned from them. I hope you discovered some gems as we studied this week's reading. I'm kind of curious, what was it in this week's reading and this lesson that really stood out to you? What was impactful to you? Feel free to leave a comment for us and let us know what stood out to you in the reading. What an amazing amount of time we've covered in just seven lessons. We've covered about 2,000 years of the Earth's history, but there's a lot more to come, and we'll definitely be spending a lot more time with Abraham in our next lesson. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>